fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology, and we make it a reality. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, the physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Dan, it is so great to be here. You know, I was very, I had some trepidation about watching this movie, um, and yet people kept saying it was really good, it was really good, so I finally went and saw it even before we decided to do this broadcast, and I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised. Um, now, I know no one has trepidation about watching our episode, so I'm not worried there, um, but I did have some trepidation in watching the movie. What did you, what'd you think was going to happen, then? And what's the worst that could happen by watching uh, a Tom Cruise movie about dogfights? I mean, that you're bored or that it stinks. Uh, there's always action and adventure, and you're not going to get hurt. Somebody I liked could have died again. That that bummed me out the first time, Dan. <laughs> Spoiler right, alert for enough. the original movie. <laughs> wow, geez. Okay, all right. Well, we got to keep that under control here because we're going to talk about some very sensitive stuff here, Denon. Um, and I know a guy who is extraordinarily sensitive, and that's our enigmatic engineer, Ben Seepser. Ben, where are you broadcasting from this week? You know, on, on the subject of that sensitivity, Dan, I've decided to relive mm -hmm. the glory days of my aviation summer camp by heading down to San Diego to the Naval Air Station here on North Island to do some plane spotting. I really want to see some F-18s because that was the plane that my squadron flew to victory in the camp dogfighting tournament. Wow, that is super exciting. Let's start with that, Ben, because I don't think I realized, you know, our viewers know uh, that you went to space camp, but what I is did. this aviation camp? Well, what's going on there? And, and I want to hear more about this dogfighting. So as part of the general governmental summer camp program, there was both space camp <laughs> and aviation challenge camp. So uh -huh. they either wanted you to become an astronaut or to become an Air Force pilot. And so right. my friends and I, you know, we did space camp one summer, and then the next summer we did uh, aviation camp where we got to fly the simulators, go in the little tube that they drop in the water so you can practice your getting out of a plane that's uh, falling, that's flooding, like all sorts of fun <laughs> stuff. Holy cow. Crawling really? through the woods at night uh, and trying to not get spotted. Wait, they stuck you in a capsule in the, in the ocean? No, no, it's like the pool. <laughs> Oh, oh! I thought this was dangerous. I, I, I was, it was getting excited about this. It was slightly dangerous. You, you know, you could bump your head and hurt yourself. <laughs> Inject, ingest too much chlorine. I mean, there's serious. There's serious oh, I, it was more of a here. lake pool. I, I don't think there's any chlorine in it. <laughs> that makes it worse. That's right. the other form of danger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You get ingest a protozoa and end up being on the toilet for the rest of your trip. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, one other thing here, Ben. Since you went there. Uh, you got to know about call signs, you know, Maverick, Iceman. Yeah. Uh, these are pretty cool call signs. Did you get one of these cool ones or well, how did you, did you get one? How does this work? You know, to be honest, I don't remember my call sign, but the, the thing about call signs is that's like the biggest work of fiction of the movie is call mm -hmm. signs are not cool. Or if, if, if those are their real call signs, they're not what you thought you'd think they'd be. Like Iceman isn't like a cool guy who has like a cool look. He's like the guy who tripped over the cooler at the lake and dumped all the ice all over. And he had to go to the store and get more ice. That's why he's called Iceman, not <laughs> because how cool he is. <laughs> That's great. I'm going to put up an article because it is, you're right, it is your embarrassing moment. Uh, the armed services prides themselves on what they call a humility-based culture. Um, and fam my favorite quote from one of the articles is, you know, everyone wants a really cool <laughs> nickname, uh, but that that's not how it works. <laughs> no. so, Go goose got bit by a goose at the park. <laughs> <laughs> right. I would want Funk Lord, uh, but there's no way I'm getting that unless uh, I sit in my own filth for a long time and end up stinking up the entire place that's the only way i'm getting funk lord um but what about you denon you know i feel like you've got a little with call signs here uh i want to know what yours was and and you know how do you connect to this to the air force well i i don't know i've never had a call sign though in our our latest D, D campaign i am viewed as being um a bit dangerous and making crazy decisions for the group so i am sure there is an amusing call sign in there somewhere. Um, mm. My brother currently calls me Idiot Wizard. Um, I'm not sure if that works <laughs> as a call sign. That's um, a great one. But, you know, that, that, could, that could work well. 
Um, I, I have the closest I've come to anything of these exciting adventures is very, 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 very early flight simulator on a PC um, where I failed repeatedly to land my airplane on the aircraft carrier. I think I got once lucky and hit the deck. Um, I don't know that I landed successfully, but I at least made contact. Um, and I just remember everything being green. So I don't think there were actually real graphics yet. <laughs> you know, that sounds very familiar. I remember when I was very, very little, someone had, uh, I think it was the Microsoft Air uh, Flight Simulator that was on like a Windows 3.1 machine. But it wasn't, when you flew, it was the screen like rewrote itself every three seconds. So yeah. it wasn't like you were actively going in. It was like you saw it and then it went blip and then you were closer. And then yep. blip, you were closer. closer. Yeah. So, is, that, I, is that the same I, one? I, and that feels like it, Dad. And that may be why I had trouble landing. Yeah. yeah. I, didn't, I didn't deal well with the blips. Yeah, I played those Windows 3 point something video games too. I had like a Battle of Britain one and some. Bat, you know, Battle of the Pacific Theater one, where you got to try to do carrier flights with the the uh, you know either zeros or with if you're playing the American side with the uh, those carrier based pl planes. And man, was it tough to like actually hit, <laughs> hit that spot. Yeah. It's and it's it's true. That's like it is like the hardest thing in aviation is hitting the carrier in just the right spot so you actually catch the, those wires and don't go off the front of the carrier. <laughs> Always right. a bad thing. Well, yeah. That is a bad thing. Well, here's what's funny. You know, I mentioned last time, I always like to say this is my favorite movie, right? Well, I can tell you definitively that Top Gun was not my favorite movie. I discovered it much later. I didn't watch it contemporarily. Contemporarily? Is that right? Contemporaneously? Contemporarily. I don't know. Contemporary? At the same time as everyone else? <laughs> I wasn't. I didn't see it at the same time as everybody else. Uh, and what I, what I did remember is playing the Top Gun Nintendo game, which was, as you said, Ben, impossible to land the plane. You do like a dogfight, but when you have to land a carrier at the end of the level, and I don't think I knew a single person who could do it. It was extraordinarily difficult, yeah. uh, but that was my connection to Top Gun. But I almost became a Top Gun. A lot of people don't know this, but I was I was thinking about joining the armed services when I was leaving high school, and the Air Force was what I was going to join. Uh, I did it mostly because I wanted to be in a plane, but also I thought that they were the smartest people in the armed forces. And I know that there's a lot of when you get into the armed forces, there's a lot of uh, you know. Uh, it, there's camaraderie, but there's also, you know, tribalism where, you know, depending on what armed services you're in. Uh, so I don't know if that's true, but that's what I thought. But I didn't. Um, and so I never got to fly. And, and, and Dan, uh, if I may, aren't you a yeah. tad tall to be a pilot? Yeah, I was going to say, that? Dan, I was thinking the same thing. I think you wouldn't fit in, an air, in a, a fighter, Dan. Wow. Well, that's just I didn't think of that. I didn't even think about that. I thought it, I mean, I've got I had 2020 vision at the time. I don't know if I still do. Uh, I thought that's all you needed. Basically, was a gigantic brain and 2020 vision. But you got to be small. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. It's, the, it's the Luke Skywalker so, problem, yeah. but the inverse of it. Luke Skywalker oh. was short for a stormtrooper. I feel like you're tall for a pilot. Yeah. Wow. I don't. Well, it's because I didn't do it because my know, dreams would have been crushed. This is bringing back a memory of mine from that summer camp. They had a Harrier jet. Um, you know, the British Harrier jet at on mm -hmm. display at the camp. And they mm -hmm. would always joke about how you see Arnold Schwarzenegger flying one of these things in True Lies. But Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger is like half a foot too tall and like has a chest like 10 inches too big to fit in that cockpit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would have the same problem. I have roughly yeah. the same dimensions as Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. So uh, it would be a problem. I didn't realize that. I'm glad you guys, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Uh, so I made the right decision, is what you, you're saying. You definitely made the right podcasting. decision, man. Right. Instead you, of being an American hero and saving people's lives, uh, I do a podcast you, from my living room. That's a much better life you, decision. You would have ended up being ground-based, you know, refilling fuel tanks or something. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Which is honest work, Which but is I want work it's important work sure. but it's not as exciting work. <laughs> no definitely not uh well this is i don't know what you guys thought about this movie but i, I saw the original top gun recently i watched maverick this had kind of like a ghostbusters afterlife five which we're going to talk about we're going to talk about that movie in a, in a future episode but it felt like it was trying to recreate the original now don't get me wrong i, I enjoyed the movie but it felt a little like rehashy, um, but also what's kind of interesting is this f mission that they're on that takes up most of the movie feels very much like Star Wars. Uh, they're they're basically trying to get into a death star, land-based Death Star, and blow up something roughly the size of a bread box. Uh, I don't know what you a guys wombat, thought about Dan. that. A wombat, a wombat, a wombat, a wombat. But 
you know, I, I, it's not that I didn't like it. I enjoyed every second of the movie, but it felt derivative. But maybe that's what Hollywood is. I don't know. What did you think then after finishing it? You know, it's interesting, Dan. I, I agree with everything you said, but I will it's a good say. Good thing to do. Yeah, but I will <laughs> say for me, like there's der- bad derivative and good derivative. What okay. I liked about this, and I don't know if it's just been so long since the first movie came out. I thought it had enough sort of positive, interesting changes to it, and it mm-hmm. actually did some things. Let's just say there's I, – I don't want to give too many spoilers. I know it's been out for a while. There's relationships between Tom Cruise's character and, and the son of you know Goose. I mm-hmm. thought they did that shockingly well. Like from the previews, mm-hmm. I expected it to be all cliché. And it yeah. was mostly cliche, good cliche, mm-hmm. and then some nice like, okay, I, I like that. I like how you handled that. So I agree with you, very derivative, but they at least took the time to put a little thought into it, I felt. That was my reaction to it, which is why I liked it more than I expected. Yeah, I think okay. that's a good point. I think the Hollywoodness of it actually was probably some of the best stuff of it. Like it was really fascinating mm-hmm. to you know have this idea of – what would happen if Goose's kid and Maverick had to interact in the Navy? And it was a really interesting interpersonal drama that they uh, brought into the the movie. And I really enjoyed that whole storyline of it. I, I think that that's a good point. I mean, I think it was a little ridiculous that he literally had the same haircut, mustache, T-shirt, and shorts of his dad from 35 years ago. And favorite song to play <laughs> that's a little at much. the piano bar. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a little much. I so mean, what you're like, saying, Dan, is I need to change my relationship to my dad. <laughs> I mean, does he wear a hat and a vest and and go on camera? I don't well, know, actually, maybe. luckily, I mean, luckily he has neither a mustache nor a beard. But I do have shockingly <laughs> similar mannerisms. It's very scary, Dan. Uh, no, that is true. Um, but you don't have the same wardrobe, which is one of the things that was also right. silly about it. Um, but you know, I mentioned the Star Wars mission, which is fun. Um, but we all we have all seen Star Wars. But uh, you know, I mentioned he's trying to shoot something the size of a bread box. Well, most people listening aren't going to know what a bread box is because that's a technology from the 1950s. You know, now <laughs> we've got plastic bags that we put bread in, to, to, you know, to keep, it, to keep it from going stale. Uh, but that's kind of interesting. That in some ways really encapsulates my bread box uh, comparison here highlights what's going on in this movie, which is really about the evolution of technology. It's about the what happens over the passage of time. You know, we start with the cutting edge Dark Star, which goes, you know, Mach 10.2. We end up with an F-14. You know, it, it shows the evolution of speed, how, how, how times change, the evolution of human beings, um, digital versus analog, um, you know, young versus old, uh, man versus kid. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of things going on here that I think are extraordinarily interesting. And to start that conversation, we have to talk about this. What is Mach? Because in the opening sequence, we do see Tom Cruise taking a, an experimental aircraft and trying to reach Mach 10. You know, of course, in true Maverick style, he, he's got to overdo it a little bit. He hits Mach 10.2. But what is Mach? What exactly does that mean? You know, I know that this has something to do with the speed of sound, uh, but what exactly is the definition of that? And Ben, as someone who's created several things, both in his youth and as a professional, that have gone the speed of sound and quicker, um, what exactly does it mean? So Mach is is the speed of sound, but it's relative to your current position in the atmosphere. So the speed of sound is variable. It's not a fixed number. It's not always... You know, 767 miles per hour, which is the average. You know, it's a little, it's a little bit faster at sea level. It would be even faster if we went down to like Death Valley and tried to break the sound barrier down there. And it's, uh, and it gets slower as you go up, and then it gets faster again, then it gets slower again, and then it gets faster again. Like it, it's a very weird um, measurement because it it changes by all these different factors of density and temperature and all sorts of stuff. So it's it's a really interesting number, and it's actually a very difficult thing to calculate. You know, Dan, there's something really important if you're going to understand Mach, right? Because mm-hmm. we all know when you break the sound barrier, you get that sonic boom. We also, yeah. all of us watching Tom, Top Gun know that if Tom Cruise is going to fly really fast by you in the control tower, you're likely to spill mm-hmm. your coffee on yourself unless <laughs> right. you have an F triple GBT <laughs> mug. These, these are Mach proof. These these mugs have been designed to survive the Tom Cruise flyby. So I highly recommend anyone working on an aircraft carrier where Tom Cruise might be coming by to get themselves a mug. Now, Denon, you mentioned 
you're worried about spilling your mug of coffee with Tom Cruise flying by, but you know what will never spill is your water from a sealed uh, FGGBT water bottle, because that cap, that's going to keep that water in there no matter how fast uh, uh, Tom Cruise flies by your uh, your tower, <laughs> your control tower. I love it. And who doesn't want to, if you're going to have coffee spilled on you, why not be representing uh, the group that explained how exactly that flyby works? You know, I mean, how does the sonic boom work and how does it spill coffee on you? Uh, it's a constant reminder. I, I love it, Denon. And, you know, speaking of the first guy to probably buzz a tower, you know, this movie, uh, Maverick, might be, I don't know if this has ever been stated anywhere, but through my research, uh, I've got a, I've got a, uh, I've got a hypothesis here, guys. I think that Maverick might have been based on the greatest pilot of all time, or at least American pilot, and that's Chuck Yeager. Uh, you know, he was, um, you know, he's the guy who flew that first supersonic aircraft back in 1947. And anyone who knows about 1947 knows there's a lot of things going fast in the skies of that in that particular year, not the least of which was was Chuck Yeager. Uh, you know, he threw he flew the Bell X1, which was codenamed the Oxcart, uh, which was a joke. Oxcart is the slowest thing, and obviously they were trying to go for the fastest uh, speed record. That's the that's the type of humor you know that the Pentagon's known for. They're known for being just a bunch of goofy guys over there. Uh, but from what I understand, this is not an official record, though, guys. I don't think this has actually been declassified. And as we all accept that Chuck Yeager broke the, the sound barrier, he's the first person to do it. I don't know that it's official. There's lots of classified information from this time period that has just not been released to the public. This might be one of them. But I don't want us to overlook the fact that the greatest American pilot of all time is Mr. Chuck Yeager. Uh, I love this story, and I love what he did. Well, I think it is amazing what he did, Dan, and what you point out. You know, it's interesting. Um, we do have to, you know, it allows us to speculate as to what else is not being released um, and mm -hmm. what, what non-disclosure galactic um, or intergalactic uh, agreements some of us may or may not have signed that we're not allowed to talk about in our professional um, opinions. I mean, I right. know Ben has often revealed on this show that there's things he can't yeah. talk about. I have not That's yet right. revealed that, and I'm not revealing that now. Um, but I, I, I'm just saying, you know, I, I'm glad you brought this up. It's an interesting thing. Yeah. Well, I will tell you, to, to, for the, all those people listening, I am an open book. I am the ultimate in transparency. Uh, my two co-hosts are, are veiled, uh, <laughs> ob obfuscated in conspiracy and and questions about their origins and what they actually do, but not me, Denon. Uh, I, I am an open book. Uh, ask away, and I will give you an answer whether it is right or wrong. We appreciate that, Dan. Um, you got it. I, I do love that, you know, he, he broke this record and we all know it and yet we don't know it and it's not official. Uh, those are funny things about life, right? When you have the unofficial <laughs> official record. Um, but I feel like I feel like the our, our aviation expert, um, Ben, if you have not personally set any recent records, you, you're, you're kind of probably really interested in what the records are and breaking them down for us. Yeah, so... I think Chuck Yeager's record is really interesting because it was such an important thing to break that sound barrier for the first time. And it kind of sucked in a way for Chuck Yeager because he didn't get to do much else beyond that because he was so important historically that he kind of didn't get to then go on and do more uh, rocket flights or be a part of the Mercury programs and things like that, which I think he wanted to be. Uh, but what's also fascinating is how much faster we went after that. So there was the X-15, which was the fastest aircraft that's ever f flown, which still only went to Mach 6.7, not much uh, compared to Tom Cruise's Mach 10 point something that we see in the movie, uh, but that was the fastest manned aircraft. There's also been, and but it was still a rocket. So the fastest scramjet, which is what they say, which was what Tom Cruise is flying, that went Mach 9.6, but it was an unmanned vehicle, the NASA X-41 a really cool vehicle, a really small vehicle. You couldn't even strap a person into it or on it for that matter. It was that small. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Yeah. Given that it was small, I bet you could strap a coyote to it, Ben. Um, <laughs> uh, you could certainly have strapped a coyote to it. I don't know how well those straps yeah. would have held up, though, at Mach 9.6. <laughs> Uh, Wally Cody has incredible arms. I've seen him hold on to the rockets going at incredible speeds. I've also seen rockets fly out from underneath him. So I guess it yeah. does kind of depend on the circumstances. Yeah, it really depends on whether or not he uh, bought the Acme holdfast straps or not. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, <laughs> right, <laughs> which are extraordinarily important. Uh, but you know, it's it's this it's an interesting it's an interesting thought because constantly we are looking to go faster and faster and faster. You know, you mentioned the unmanned aircraft, but what I like about the 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 uh, when you put a person in one of these aircrafts, there's incredible physics that are put onto them. We're going to talk about that in a second because I still want to talk about this ten point this Mach ten point two goal because I know you mentioned Ben that this is a, a relative term. It kind of goes up and down based on where this is happening, mm-hmm. but Roughly, I think if my calculations are correct, this is somewhere in the neighborhood of 7,000 miles per hour-ish. That's pretty quick. I mean, it all depends, obviously, how quickly you get up to that speed. Uh, But that's still pretty fast to be going in a rocket. Uh, You don't have not a lot of room for error uh, is, is what I'm saying. Yeah, so it is an incredibly fast. I mean, at the slowest possible speed it could be is like 5,800 miles per hour. That's like the slowest Mach 10 is in our atmosphere. So, yeah, this is an incredibly fast airplane. And the problem is the speed, right? You have all is that you have to fly through something, you're flying through the air. And that is what makes this flight difficult because you have all this air resistance, all this friction. That's why you see it heating up. Um, And then the other problem is the scramjet itself. The scramjet is a very interesting uh, form of propulsion. It stands for supersonic combustion ramjet, which is not Mm -hmm. a very helpful term. But basically, Mm -hmm. we've all seen jets that have all these fans, and that's how they compress the air and then light it and ignite it, and that's how a jet works. A, a, A scramjet, or a ramjet for that matter too, there is no compression other than the cone. It's just basically a cone flying in air that injects fuel behind it. And the idea is you smush the air so much by this cone in this tube that when you then inject the fuel in it behind the cone, it auto ignites. And then you get fu- wow. you get propulsion from that. It's a very tricky technology and they've only very recently have we been able to get them stable and working. Um, and the other trick with them is they only they tend to only work at, in speed ranges. First of all, you have to be going supersonic for them to work at all. Um, so you need like a rocket or something else to get you up to speed first. Um, but after that, you still have the problem of that this, you know, if it's very difficult to engineer them for a wide range of speed. And that's, I think, part of why we see the vehicle fail is because that vehicle is not designed to go much faster because probably the engine wasn't really designed to go much faster. Yeah, the, and what I love about it is that failure piece. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I the engine is fascinating. I get that. Me, I like figuring out how things are going to blow up, catch on fire, um, or otherwise self-destruct. Um, it right. is what got me into physics early in my life is, you know, the idea of explosions. And, and it's amazing how much friction and heat you can generate with speed just with the air. I think we forget that. It's a big mm-hmm. problem for the flash. We've discussed that before. You know, <laughs> right, that's right. Um, but you really see it illustrated, I think, well in this movie. And it shows how important material science is. Or dare mm-hmm. I say, Dan, mm-hmm. foam. Mm. Oh, hey now. Okay. <laughs> I mean, foam is a model kind of construct for helping us understand material properties and how they might save. So you really, I mean, we haven't talked about foam in a long time. I've been off my game a bit, um, but a bit, but I think, I think, you know, people should really think about, um, I'm really going to challenge those, you know, hypersonic engineers to think about how they could leverage my favorite material. I mean, we made a foam Hulk. You should be able to make a foam (laughs) supersonic plane. I'm just saying. (laughs) We sure have. The Fluffy Hulk, that is famously uh, my suggestion. It's how I stumped a professor. I might be one of the only people in mankind who who stumped a professor. I'm very proud of that, uh, and I'm very proud of your work in foam. Uh, You know, but but you bring up an interesting point here, Dennett. Uh, I don't know if we can coat a ship in foam and fly it into the atmosphere, but there might be something to that. But it is interesting. You talk about how the the friction would build up. We see that in the opening sequence where when Maverick is going 10 point Mach 10.2, we see the, you know, the the flames kick in and the the ship breaks apart. I mean, it's going so fast, the friction is so intense that the plane breaks apart. And this is, you know, this is why we had trouble getting stuff into space. It's why the, our the surface of the earth isn't littered with meteorites and space junk.
junk, because as soon as it comes into our atmosphere, it burns to a crisp. I mean, that's why we don't look like the surface of the moon full of craters. So this is a powerful force, and it's essentially invisible to the naked eye. You don't really think about it when you go, you know, when you're just walking around uh, enjoying the sunshine. But there's a lot of stuff between us and space that we have to always keep into consideration. And a good thing it's there because it allows us to breathe. But um, <laughs> I'm just, just throwing also, that out there, Dan. Also um, important. But yeah. it is. But but you're totally right. I think friction, particularly air friction, is one of those underrated things. I I, I mean, the people who really understand it are not just the pilots and the people who fly, but I will say people who are really car junkies. I mean, even at that level, it's amazing how much air friction can start to play a role on your car and its efficiency and its engine efficiency. Um, and little tricks with air friction to get you can actually you know manipulate the air with the shape and design of your car. So it's fascinating that we worry about it here and his um, jet blowing up, but it it actually applies through whole ranges of technology and experiences that we have. Well, I like that. Also, you brought up that reentry stuff because Dan, if we want to talk about the true Mach mm-hmm. record, it's the Apollo yeah. astronauts when they returned from space. They were going like Mach thirty two. So that's oh. <laughs> <laughs> that is the true. Those are the true speed kings of uh, of the mock uh, world. Yeah, that is re- that that is really fast, and it, it those that there's a person in there, right? I mean, it's, there, there are three. That, yeah, that technically that technically counts. But you know, one of the interesting things when we talk about going fast and you know breaking up the atmosphere and why are we doing this, right? We're, we're putting these on jets that we can use for our military, right? I mean, this is for for dogfights and for you know for defending uh, the country and our ideals and all that. Uh, but this is where I think the physics gets a little weird is when you start actually applying. Um, movement to the jet. You're not just going in a straight line trying to break a speed limit, right? You're not just in a race. When you're actually moving around and trying to outmaneuver somebody else, the physics, supersonic physics, I think are a little strange. You know, I did a whole episode on on a supersonic parachute that was created for the Mars rover on an episode of Fascinating Nouns, and the physics of supersonic, uh, I guess that was deceleration towards another planet. It gets weird. Parachutes don't work the same way. Things are, are functioning strangely. And this is not this, you know, this is in, you know, independent of what happens inside of a jet when you're going, you know, supersonic speeds and you have to make a turn or you're spinning around. Uh, Things get weird, Denon. The physics gets very, very strange. Well, I, I, yes, yes. And I mean, obviously it gets strange, but those of us who have a deep understanding of it, Dan, don't feel it so strange. I'm just going to throw that out there. I mean, quantum mechanics is also strange, but then it's not once you understand it. But I think (laughs) one of the things that people forget is that turning is accelerating, right? Yep. Like, and, and accelerations are what create forces on you, right? Accelerations are the things that you feel. Um, we all experience that basically driving your car, starting and stopping, that's a straight line acceleration. But anytime you turn a cor- corner, you feel it. And the faster you turn a corner of the same radius, right, the more acceleration you get. And the thing we forget is for acceleration, it's actually V squared that comes in. So once mm. you're starting going supersonic, um, your accelerations, you're, you're squaring the velocity. Your accelerations are even that much more effective. Right. So trying right. to make you know, a turn at supersonic speeds is going to be way more acceleration than making a turn if you're going slower. So exactly. And in a dogfight, you got to be able to turn or you're in trouble. Right. And, and then not to mention, you know, you've got all the weirdness of you've gone faster than the speed of sound. There's sonic you know, booms and there's, um, you know, sort of all sorts of weird, weird effects going on in the density and shock waves and different things. So engineering this, surviving it, all very interesting stuff. Well, I will say I do have a particularly rudimentary understanding, but just for those listening, I believe acceleration is, I just lost it, speed times direction, right? Is it speed and Acceleration is how your your, your velocity changes in time. Oh, oh, speed over time, right, okay. But change in speed or direction. Change in speed or direction and and how fast you do it. It's change in velocity over time. Okay. And and your velocity includes your direction, so that's why it's an acceleration. Right. So what I've done is I've completely made it simple for those listening. I I really (laughs) really dumbed it down there. I I think I made people more I will say... 
Yeah. Though Ben is accurate, it's the change of velocity. I love the way you said it. It's either your change in speed or your change in direction or both. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to well, go as you. the analytical mastermind. Yeah. You broke it yeah. into its most fundamental pieces. <laughs> thank you. Thank yeah. you. And I think it's important to think about the dogfighting because odds are they're they're not probably going supersonic speeds while they're doing the dogfighting because it's it's difficult to maneuver at those speeds and you don't mm-hmm. have the same maneuverability. You don't have the same um, your your uh, control surfaces aren't really designed to do those crazy high maneuvers at like Mach 2, 3. You also mm-hmm. burn a lot of fuel using your afterburners to go those kinds of speeds. And if you're in a kind of long protracted dogfight, you don't want to be burning fuel and going that fast while you're doing it. You want to actually kind of slow down and get more maneuverable. I, I do feel like running out of fuel is the number one no-no in a dogfight. Actually, running out of ammo is probably number one. Running out yeah. of fuel is probably number two. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> that's right. I, I think I'd go the other way. I think the ammo is kind of expected to some degree. It's hmm. <laughs> Okay. Hmm. You're willing to run out of ammo, and if you have fuel, you can still escape, exactly. I guess, is the idea. Okay. I guess that's true. I, I want to. I'm like Butch casting the Sundance Kid, right? I'd rather have a bunch of ammo and just have a standoff, right? I mean, if you're if you're in a dogfight, you're kind of out of fuel anyway. You know, I mean, in, in a way, you're out of fuel. You're out of time. I want to shoot my way out, uh, which is why I love movies like this. But you can't shoot your way out of G-forces, Den, and you know this. Uh, and G-forces are kind of the inescapable uh, deterrent when it comes to incredible accelerations and you know from from what i understand the effects of g-forces on the human body are incredible you know you you start to lose consciousness your your blood starts to not go where it needs to go your vessels start to close uh you can you know what you can have g-lock which is gravitational loss of consciousness from excessive g's and in the movie we see or at least they say that they're going in excess of nine g's or they're, they're 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 feeling the effects of in excess of nine g's which is the weight of 2,000 pounds. So essentially your head can crush your spine. Uh, you know, you have the, the stress on the actual components of the plane, the structure, uh, the, the frame of the plane has incredible stress on it. So there's a lot going on here when you start getting into these really incredible levels of Gs. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's, it's one of the cool things. I'm going to bring in Einstein. Um, take him Let's in here. It. You know, one of the cool things is we realized in physics, acceleration and gravity are basically the same thing, two sides of the same coin. And that's why mm-hmm. we use the term G, right? Mm-hmm. G is the acceleration due to gravity. It's 9.8 meters per second squared because I can no longer remember, you know, proper American units because I've been teaching physics too long. Right. <laughs> so it's something in feet per second squared. I'm guessing 32-ish is a yep. number I remember. That's right. That's um, right. But, you know, 9.8 is nicer because you can round it to 10 and then you don't need a calculator. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. But what you got here, Dan, is you're basically, like you said, it's like having 2,000 pounds dropped on you. It's like going into a huge gravitational field, maybe like being on Jupiter or the sun, right, depending on where you're going. You know, so this is this is massive. It's the inverse of the Superman problem is how I like to describe it, right? Superman Mm -hmm. comes to a lower gravity and is more powerful. Putting you in G's is going to a higher gravity and crushing you. Um, that's the risk. So it's a major engineering challenge. Yeah. yeah. Well, it ain't nothing but a G thing, baby, is what I always say. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I like that they, they do two great things in the movie. One, one is that they show the G-lock, which is, you know, the blacking out, your vision narrows and all that. But I also like that they mentioned the engineering risk of it, that these planes could potentially never fly again because if you exceed their rated limits now you you can no longer trust the plane there's there's beams that have now potentially bent and things like things like that in the plane you you can't trust it you you'd have to scrap it or at least do a an, an incredible amount of refurbishment to ever fly that vehicle again um and then there's the thing that they didn't mention which is the g-suit you know we talk about these mm-hmm. pilots you know surviving these g's and part of it is you know you're doing these gruntings and all these weird things right. to keep the blood up but you also have this uh, suit the G suit that is uh, that compresses around you, kind of like a, a blood pressure cuff, but around your entire body to literally press the blood back up into your head so that you don't lose too much blood from your head and pass out. It's like a thunder shirt, right? When you put a when you put a shirt on a dog when they're scared for the right. Yeah, exactly. That- well, it certainly squeezes you like that, but a little harder than a thunder shirt. 
Right. Yeah, I did yes. not know about Thunder shirts. I like mm-hmm. that, Dan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say, Ben, I, I do believe, I, I get it, they're engineered to a certain limit and you don't want to go above the threshold. I assume the engineers and the people in charge are smart enough to know that whatever limit they give Tom Cruise, he will go above so that they just lie to him <laughs> and say, you know, don't exceed, right. you know, nine Gs and they design it for 12 because they know that's what he's going to do. There's always a margin. And, and in general, modern planes can survive G-forces higher than what a person can survive, um, certainly from a margin perspective. And yeah. so it, it, at that point, it, it becomes more of an issue of inspecting and recertifying and not a problem of odds are you will die before the airplane just breaks apart. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> that, is, that is good to know. So when you start going, uh, they want you to land the plane because the, the plane's in danger. And, and you're replaceable, but the plane is not, is basically what, what you're saying there, Ben. Is it's that right? It's generally the other way around. The, the plane's replaceable. The person isn't. But uh. <laughs> Do they really think that? I don't know if the military thinks the way. Those are, these are multi-million dollar planes, and there's always another recruit right around the corner. I don't know. Yeah, but th- I, there's I, not I, always another Tom Cruise. There's not another Maverick, Dan. That's true. You know, somebody with that's thousands true. and thousands of flight hours and experience, that's hard to replace. That you is always true. get another airplane off the, the manufacturing line. <laughs> I guess that is true. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that the, the G-forces can actually affect the plane because that's something to consider when you're going at these speeds and accelerations, uh, you know, when you're in the middle of a dogfight. And, and the other thing of, that I, that, that's also very interesting that we see in this movie is not only can the G-forces affect the plane, but flocks of birds uh, you got to look out for, I mean, there's no way you can avoid them, right? I mean, they're coming at you at, at speeds that are, uh, you know, indetectable uh, by, by human physiology. But, you know, we see a bird strike and it blows up one of the engines. Now, this is, I think this is a real thing. Ben, you've designed engines. I'm sure you didn't, you know, you didn't throw birds into them. But, you know, this yeah. is catastrophic. Um, you know, this, I love birds. We don't belong in the skies, dang it. But since we're <laughs> up there, we should probably avoid sticking birds in our engines. Yeah, you know, I've never designed, I've never worked on air breathing engines myself, so I've never had to worry about uh, bird ingestion. I've had to worry about bird strike. <laughs> you know, the, a rocket can hit a bird on its way up potentially. Sure. Uh, sure. There's actually there's actually a bat that was once uh, hanging onto the rocket right be- up until right before launch, uh, and we we could see huh. it in the cameras. Uh, a bat? Did you say? A bat? Yeah, a bat had landed on the rocket and was just hanging out there, <laughs> right, and then wow. flew away right before the. The launch because once the rocket started making noise, it got scared. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I would imagine so. <laughs> but uh, the but birds bird strikes are a problem because you know when you're going really fast, you know if a bird flying into you not a big deal, but you flying into a bird at Mach whatever is a big deal because now you're flying into something very fast. And this is how you know we we see these we we all heard about. Uh, Captain Charles Solenberger, who landed the mm-hmm. commercial jet in the Hudson River, mm-hmm. um, that happened because they flew through a flock of birds that was so large that all, all both engines of his uh, air, airplane got destroyed by the birds. That's a very rare occurrence. You know, we design engines to ingest a bird. That's like an expected thing to happen. <laughs> Um, but if there's too many, you'll lose too many parts of the engine, and it'll it will break. Is that a term? Ingesting a bird? Is that? Yeah. <laughs> and so they're rated for a number of bird ingestions. Basically, they're, they're, it's expected that the bird the the engine w- needs to survive sucking in one bird, um, <laughs> and Jeez. or two. I'm not sure exactly how. There's a great uh, documentary about when they were building the se- the triple seven. And they they have the video of them throwing what, uh, turkeys. Like, of ch- I think it was chickens, like just you know thawed out oh chickens through God. the engine to see how many of the fins of the turbofans would break off. Uh, wow! I I just want to go on record here of saying this this podcast has gone dark in the past. <laughs> we we've gone down some dark things, but yeah. bird ingestion I think is the darkest we've reached. Yeah. It's definitely, definitely up there. Well, I will tell you, there's one really, int- and this is going down a dark path, but there's a famous video, and you know I love animals, so I hate talking about this stuff, but there's this famous image of this pitcher um, called the big unit, Randy Johnson, and in the middle of a major league game, he throws a fastball, and a pigeon gets in the way, and it obliterates the pigeon. Now, that's a baseball throw. I mean, <laughs> it's going 100 and some miles per hour. I mean, you know, Randy Johnson could... 
put some heat on a ball. But that's it's crazy to me that these you know these things. Ha- I mean, the ball was fine, which is different with from a jet engine. Uh, but you know, this is these are the hazards when you're in a space, you know, occupying a space with other creatures um, that you know, and most humans don't really care about. <laughs> they were gonna fly anyway, so we're gonna have to instead of working it so that we scare the geese away, uh, we'll just throw in a more geese into an engine to make sure that it can yeah. take all the. <laughs> it's, it's much easier. It's much easier that way. I like that you mentioned the scaring the birds away, Dan, because that's what yeah. we do at modern airports is we hire falconers. We set off uh, like kind of air cannons and things like that to scare the birds, make them treat the airport as a place where they're not safe, where they're not welcome so that you don't have flocks of birds flying in front of uh, runways to get sucked into the engines. That's great. I imagine most travelers feel like they're not welcome at an airport either because it's a <laughs> <laughs> Airport can be a hostile place. Well, we, we also don't want to suck people into engines. Yeah, <laughs> right. so we have to yeah. be yeah. careful. I'm guessing they're not doing that in a test lab, throwing cadavers into an no, engine. No, they're not. But, uh, but that is a risk on the aircraft carriers. You know, you, <laughs> you, know, you have a confined space. There, there. It's it's a real it's a real uh, risk. And uh, with humans going into the humans getting sucked into the engines, like right before the planes get catapulted you have to be very careful about where you're standing and where you're kneeling because if you're oh in the God. wrong spot you're you're that plane's going to suck you in <laughs> okay I, this I, really has gone I, dark i imagine that they don't rate them for human ingestion it's all that's accidental no that's uh th- that's a immediate uh no fly <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that engine's not surviving that. Okay. Well, that I, I that's good. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to say that. Well, I will say that, you know, uh, we did go dark, Denon, but I think that there's a lot to learn here, right? I mean, I think yes. what it shows is that, you know, we as a species have evolved, and not just, you know, socially and mentally, but technology is something we are constantly trying to do. And when we see the last dogfight in this particular movie, it's really analog versus digital, you know, um, Spoiler alert, Tom Cruise goes behind enemy lines and gets himself into an F-14 and ends up having to leave a, a, a nondescript, undisclosed, foreign, hostile foreign government. We don't exactly know who they are, uh, <laughs> but we do know they have an, an, an F-14 for some reason. And he's got to get away, but he's, you know, he's fighting fifth generation fighters. We don't exactly know what that means either, except that they're incredibly advanced. Uh, you know, there's a lot of amorphous things going on here in the description, but we do know it's analog versus digital. It's the past versus the future. And, you know, as a, as a narrative theme, I love that. But when you get to the nitty gritty, when you're actually in a dogfight and you're outmanned and outgunned because your particular vehicle is not up to snuff and doesn't have all the bells and whistles, is it possible to be competitive in a dogfight, especially when your life's on the line? Uh, Denon, as someone who's been around and I imagine he's been in a dogfight before, you're the guy to ask this question to. Well, well, first of all, I have to admit, I'm, I'm, I was pretty sure that the, the fifth generation airplanes did not refer to their cellular service. So, but other <laughs> than that, I'm with you. I didn't really know what was going on there, um, okay. you know, and they were probably far out of the, the 5G range. Yeah, um, I think so. But, but I do like, your, you know, this, this question of whether Tom Cruise in an F-14 or Maverick in an F-14 is better than generic enemy pilot in the fifth generation plane is interesting. Now, in this case, I think it's clear there was still a pilot in the other plane, so some human interaction was needed to control it. Um, and I think from that perspective, this comes down to the intelligence and the skill of the pilot. Yes, you can get an advantage from equipment, but you can only get so much advantage, right? If you are smarter and, and just quick enough you can overcome, I think, the handicap of the lesser equipment. Because let's let's be clear, an F-14, it may be, quote, lesser in some ways, but it is still, it's not like he was in a biplane with one machine gun, right? It mm-hmm. still is a pretty solid level of technology. Um, I, th- I believe he does run out of certain things like bullets and missiles, so that is... Um, uh, I forget yeah. which now. I, I my mind just went blank. He bullets. runs out of bullets. Uh, we we know that because he's looking at his analog uh, his analog right. clock yeah. that clock. spins down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I you know I just went into G lock and could not remember what he ran out of. I was accelerating. I was turning too quickly you, there. You went man. too fast. You went too fast. You come um, in hot. But I I I would bet on Maverick. Yeah, I mean he was lucky there were any bullets at at all in that plane, considering it was a relic that was captured by the enemy and. 
For some reason, they kept it both gassed up. At, well, I guess they showed them gassing it up. But for some reason, they kept it armed and all those other things. And on um, the runway, ready, ready yeah, to go. Yeah, yeah, in the hangar, ready to go with a with yeah. a fuel truck nearby. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I think what what what's the good point is we talked about this a little bit earlier. The the G forces are the real thing. You know, mm-hmm. airplanes are generally speaking more maneuver modern airplanes. Fourth generation fighters like the F-14 and the F-18 or fifth generation fighters like the the generic uh, unnamed one we saw in the movie, mm-hmm. they are all more maneuverable than a person can realistically survive. So what it really comes down to is who who can survive the most G-forces, which obviously Tom Cruise can. We've seen oh, that. Yeah. You know, he's, yeah. he's, the, he's the G-master. Yeah. Uh, but also it comes down to the brains. It comes down to the tactics. And so... If you can get around to the other side of the plane because you're thinking more strategically, because you have a better unique idea that the other pilot hasn't seen before, that's how you're going to win a dogfight, not having a more maneuverable plane. Because realistically, all modern jets are more maneuverable than anyone can survive. Well, I would imagine, you know, I was going to make the the analogy here that you can't take a Model T and beat a Ferrari, uh, no matter how skilled the driver is. But I guess that's unfair, Denon, because what you're saying is the technology is close enough where they're competitive, not so far distant that it's, you know, a, a, a horse trying to trying to outrun an Aston Martin. I, I believe that's right. Yeah. And, and, and I think the classic example that um, everyone is aware of is how Kirk beats Khan in The Wrath of Khan by thinking three-dimensionally. Right. Right, and Khan is stuck right, in his two-dimensional right. thinking. Tom Cruise is mm-hmm. is like eight-dimensional thinking. Like his flying ability is <laughs> is well well mm-hmm. well beyond any other pilot um, with his ideas. It's into the multiverse is what into you're saying. the multiverse. He's, he's thinking multiversionally. Yeah. yeah, and and I will say one other big advantage: the F-14. What I mm-hmm. love about it is it has that Star Wars-esque visual detection system. The person behind you who's looking around, right? <laughs> the, 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 the other yeah. pilot is yeah. stuck with with instruments, Dan. Like like. What are you going to yeah, do? Like, yeah. he's got Goose's son looking around for him. Like, this is a major <laughs> advantage in any dogfight. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, having your buddy in the back, having an R2 unit, I think, would be the ultimate advantage. Uh, but that is a future uh, future evolution of technology. But I imagine we've hit a lot. We've, we've gone through. We've taken you on a, on a roller coaster ride here. Uh, but in case we've missed anything else, this is the place to do it, the, the place to mention it. This is our errors, additions, and omissions section. Things we wanted to talk about but we didn't quite get to. Denon, anything that we missed you wanted to touch on briefly? Well, there are two really cool things I liked in this movie. First of all, we, we another spoiler, Tom Cruise's landing gear is is taken out, is destroyed. And mm-hmm. it occurred to me, like, mm-hmm. at first, I'm like, well, what are they going to do? And then I realized, clearly, the Navy will have designed for this because this is something that could happen. And I thought that was, mm-hmm. to me, like, one of my favorite parts of the movie was like, wow, they really they really do take care of that. And I'm, I have no reason to doubt that that wasn't fairly realistic because, let's face it, they've got to be able to land mm-hmm. damaged planes. Right. At least at some level. Right. If you're damaged too much, you blow up and you die. But that's a separate issue. Um, And then the the other cool thing is what I I would call, I don't know, the the hybrid flight simulator. Right. Where they were flying real planes, but they had the graphic display of the channel they would be flying through on the mission um, in in a fashion Mm -hmm. that would allow them to know if they accidentally like flew into the canyon wall or hit the ground. Um, I actually kind of feel like, well, that's very doable. I don't know if we really have it, but you could certainly imagine how you would do it. And I just thought that was another sort of cool, fun piece of technology um, to watch. And that's certainly um, a step up from just sitting on a flight simulator, you know, back back in the room. Yeah, that, that AR was great. Uh, I have to tell you that smashing of the landing gear was probably the most predictable part of the movie. Uh, I knew that it was coming off as soon as we knew the runway was too short. Old Tom Cruise is going to, how close are we going to get? Are we going to scrape the bottom of the plane? No. How do we show that? You take off the landing <laughs> gear. Uh, so I love that. I thought about it as a as a, as a a tired trope, and I like how you thought three-dimensionally and thought, well, how is he going to land this thing? It's going to be a problem. Uh, i got to give you props on that, Dennis. Uh What about you, Ben? Is there anything that we missed that you wanted to talk about? Well, I, I got to say, I also like that they took away the bailout option, because I think when your plane's mm-hmm. that damaged, your other option is you just eject and then have a helicopter come pick you up out of the water, you know, a couple hundred right. feet off the side of the aircraft carrier. So I appreciate that they also took that option off the table. Um, I think for me, the thing I really liked about this, uh, 
movie in general is also that digital stuff. And I really liked how they showed the kind of the safety versus the the feeling of running the mission, right? Like Tom Cruise is like, we got to lower the hard deck because otherwise, you know, you it won't really feel like you're in danger and you won't be training properly. But, but you know, John Hamm's like, oh, we got to be safe. You know, you got to fly high up. And, you know, it's, it's that interesting trade-off because if the G-lock had occurred when they'd had a hard deck at 5,000 feet, um, that guy would not have been at, in nearly as much of a risk of uh, dying because he would have had thousands of more feet to recover from the G-lock uh, and pull out safely. But because of that hard deck, that really low hard deck, you know, you got that danger, but you got that danger. Yeah. You got the danger, then you, you got the danger. It is true. I mean, you got it. Look, I, I say you got to practice for a tougher situation than what you're actually going to face. Because if you can do that, if you can if you can survive that, then you can survive the actual mission. So I'm with Tom Cruise yeah. on this, as wild and crazy as he is. You know, I only have one thing here. They talk about uh, an earth bulge. Uh, in the beginning, Tom Cruise is kind of using it as a joke, as if his comms are breaking up so that he can't listen to the commanding officer telling him to bring the plane in. Uh, but something about there, you know, if he's too far uh, along on the earth, the bulge of the earth stops communications. I don't know if that's true. I think there's something to it. Uh, but I thought it was a very funny way. Uh, it's a very advanced uh, aer- aeronautical way to say, hey, I, got, I don't have cell reception up here. I- I well, he it. wasn't <laughs> in a 5G plane. Right, right, exactly. He didn't have it. Uh, didn't have the technology. Uh, but you know, this is a, this this can't be the end of the conversation. If there's anything, if you want to get in touch with the show, talk about anything else that we missed, you can find the show on Twitter at FGGBTPod, Facebook at FGGBT, and of course the website fgbt.com and remember get all that stuff a backslash merch if you want things with our face on it uh, but speaking of face then you are the face of the show uh, how can people get in touch with you if they have any other questions uh, that they have well I am on Twitter and Instagram just flip my name at Den and Michael and then Facebook is a place to find me but you got to stick a prof in there it's at prof Den and Michael Ben where can people find you you can find me on all the social media networks at B Seepser. How do you spell that? Spell that B S I E P S E R. You can find me on Twitter at Daniel J Glenn, on Instagram at the Daniel J Glenn, and on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. And if you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, make sure you rate, review, and don't forget to subscribe. And if you're watching us on YouTube, hit the like button, subscribe, and ring that bell so you never miss an episode and you help us out with that algorithm. And finally, this show contains powerful information that can be misused by those hell-bent on world domination. Now, if you have this information, you're going to have a choice before you. Use it for good or for ill. And we recommend on this show, we demand on this show, that you choose supervillain over superhero. (laughs) All right, let me try it again. And finally, this show contains powerful information that can be misused by those hell-bent on world domination. With this information, you are going to have... Ah, one more time. And finally, this show contains powerful information that can be misused by those hell-bent on world domination. You can take this information and you can use it for ill or you can use it for good. And we request, we demand on this show that you become a superhero and not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, fgbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there fgbt.com and before you leave don't forget to check out our other episodes 
you can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio only version depending on what you like we got it for you and if you do like those videos you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well we're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn and once again if you like this show you're going to like everything that I do go to danieljglenn.com to find out more thank you for listening